0: Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 33 to 37, the heart of the matter, good or evil, and uh, we're going to find some interesting things in our text this morning. Uh, Let me read it for us just so you can hear it and become acquainted with where we're going in our text, and, and then we'll take a closer look at it. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, a good man out of the good treasure Of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I don't know if you've done any research lately on talking and words and things like that, but statisticians tell us that from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you lay your head on the pillow at night, the average person is roughly around in around 40 conversations per day. Um, They've estimated that we spend about the average person who speaks the average length, speed and everything will spend about 14 years of their life talking. Amazing. Every day our words could write a book anywhere from 50 to 80 pages long. In one year, just the average person who speaks on a daily basis would author around 275 books of over 200 pages, with just what we speak, just our words. You can do more if you can speak in excess of 200 words, like some of us can, but the average person. There's one man, a Frenchman, Louis Collette, who broke the world record for the longest speech after rambling nonstop for 124 hours. What do he talk about? A Spanish painter, Salvador Dali, Catalan and culture and other topics. The previous record was held by an Indian man who delivered a 120-hour speech. And you think, I preached long. <laughs> Count your blessings. Then there was Mary Davis who started talking in Buffalo, New York and stopped finally in Tulsa, Oklahoma 110 hours later. There's also, if you go on YouTube, you can Google the world's fastest talker. She was so fast, I couldn't catch her last name, but her first name was Fran. And she talks in upwards of 600 words per minute. And they've actually had scientists tap into her brain and say, how do you do this? Because she's not rambling, she's actually talking. They were able to record her and slow her down. And she restarted portions of scripture just like that. It was amazing. She read the Gettysburg Address, and I think... It was 25 seconds or something. Just amazing lady. So our words are all over the place. One astronaut, former astronaut, Michael Collins, was talking at a banquet, and he estimated that the, 20, that the average man speaks 25,000 words per day and the average woman speaks 30,000 words per day. We all know that kind of statistic he said, the unfortunate thing is by the time I get home, I've already spent my 25000 and my wife hasn't uttered one. <laughs> uh, we talk. We use words. Well, look at what it says in verse 37. Because I don't know if you're a little troubled by this or found this a little interesting. But here's what Jesus says about our words. In verse 37, Matthew 12, he says, For by your words you will be justified... And by your words, you will be condemned. I don't know if that kind of just goes against the grain of everything you've been taught. Especially here in a church named Grace Bible Church. Doesn't it seem interesting that Jesus said that your eternal destiny, beloved, is determined by your words. Your words will determine your justification, it says, or your condemnation. Well, let's look at our text and see why Jesus says this. Because I don't know, when I first read that, I was a little troubled by that. Now, Jesus, remember, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. He's done that for several chapters. He's presented the wondrous person of Christ, his works, his words, everything. In chapter 10... um, he, after the first nine chapters, he chapter 10, he begins and he, he shares with us about his disciples, those people who work with him in ministry. And then in chapters 11 and 12, we've been in these chapters for uh, several weeks, and he basically, Matthew goes through and systematically chronicles the rejection of who Jesus Christ is by the people. And so in nine chapters, Christ offers himself. The 10th chapter, he calls men together and he says, now I need your help to continue this offer and then in verses 11 and 12 there's that open rejection we've been looking at of the people uh, really you could say it's a fulfillment of john 1 11, which says he came unto his own and his own what received him not it's just a fulfillment of god's word and as we've been moving through chapters 11 and chapters 12 we've been seeing this kind of escalating uh, level of rejection among the people First, we saw that there was doubt, then it led to criticism, and then there was actually indifference, and then the open rejection of Christ himself, and then finally, last couple of weeks, we've been looking at blasphemy, which is just the apex of rejection. They're no longer wondering who Christ is, they're no longer indifferent, they're no longer doubting about him, they're not just rejecting him anymore, they are turning on him in a very overt way, with outright blasphemy. And that's what we read uh, last two weeks ago in, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 32. That's the record of the religious leaders of Jesus' day blaspheming Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And the substance of that was we, we looked at verse 24. And just to let you kind of catch up with it, this is, seems kind of hot, so I don't know if I can turn it down a little bit. Now, when the Pharisees heard. It said, here's what they said in verse 24. This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Beelzebub, we looked at, was a name for Satan. So they watched Jesus do all these miraculous signs. He cast out demons. He did all these incredible things. He healed the blind, the deaf, the mute, everything. And then he amazed the people with all this. And the people began to wonder, could this be the Messiah? It says that, that they wondered amongst themselves, could this be the Messiah? The religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, sat back and said, well, we can't have that. And so they outright basically accused him of doing all his miracles, all his good deeds, not by the Holy Spirit, but by Satan himself. They committed a crime unequaled in human history. And that conclusion leads us to this next passage. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus condemned him. He said, that kind of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can't be tolerated. And if that's your attitude about everything that I've done for you so far, there's no hope for you. There's no forgiveness for you. If you can honestly look at all the good deeds that I've done, all the miracles, I've cast out demons, I've done all that, and your conclusion is that I do it by the power of Satan, that's ridiculous. It just shows the condition of their heart. They concluded the opposite of what the truth was saying with the fullness of revelation. It's not that they didn't know who Jesus was. They knew who Jesus was. They just rejected him. And their words are the words that ultimately will damn them. Now, it's important to understand this because it's not so much they were... Damned by their words, but their words were an expression of their heart. And their words basically just confirmed their damnation, you might say. It made their damnation evident. It was clear that they were damned by the words that came from within their heart. So it's not that you're damned by just the words that you say, but it's damned because your words represent something more. The Bible teaches that very clearly. So in effect, they were rendered hopeless in verses 31 and 32. There's no forgiveness for them. And the words that they spoke were the, you might say, the objective external evidence of their corrupt, vile, wretched hearts. And so as a result, it's no surprise that as we approach verse 33, he begins to talk about words. He begins to talk about the tongue. He begins to address this in a more dynamic way and the first thing he looks at in verse 33 is he brings up a parable a parable the word parable just means alongside of it means that you're you're going to teach a spiritual truth through a common story something that they would understand and so he begins with a parable in verse 33 look at this parable with me he says either make the tree good and it's fruit good or else make the tree bad and it's fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit that's pretty common sense, right? If I came over to your backyard and I walked in your backyard and I saw a tree and it had orange round things on it and I went up and I scratched one and pff, smells like citrus, smells like an orange, okay? And I picked one and I opened it up and boy, it's sun-kissed, boy, it was wonderful orange and I ate the orange and then I came back in the kitchen and I said, hey, you got some nice trees out there. Oh, Yeah. You saw the orange tree. Oh, no, no, that's an apple tree. And you say, no, that's an orange tree. It has oranges on it. No, 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 that's an apple tree. You would think I've lost my mind. It's just that simple. What Jesus is truly pointing out here, if a tree is good, its fruit is going to be good. If a tree is an orange tree, it's going to have oranges. If a tree is bad, he says, it has bad fruit. Because the tree and the fruit must coincide. You know, there's some fruit I don't like. I remember when we first moved into Jedder, I went in the backyard and I didn't know what that tree was. Picked one of these things, bit into it. And it was one of those persimmons. that was not quite ripe yet. I thought it was like a crab apple or something. I couldn't talk for an hour. I mean, everything just... Mm, I don't like those things. They make a mess after they are ripe and they fall over and just, oh, it's horrible. But you know what? It doesn't mean it's a bad tree because it's producing what it was created to produce. So he says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You can't have it both ways. That's what he's telling them. Well, why is he saying this? Notice that word make. Do you think he's telling them to create a tree? No, he's not saying that. That same word is used in John 5.18 when the Lord was accused of making himself equal with God. It's also used in John 8.53 and 10.33. The term make is, is also used to refer to something that you consider, something that you think about, something that you ponder. It means the same thing. And that's the way it's used here. He's saying consider the tree good when its fruit is good. And also consider the tree bad if its fruit is corrupt. Or if the tree is bad, then the fruit will be bad. So the idea is to consider or regard something. Suppose something about it. It refers to a, a mental activity. It's not talking about creating a tree. So he's saying in your thinking or judging or evaluating, if a tree is good, then it's going to have good fruit. And the reason he's using that is because they just accused him of doing good works by whose power? By Satan's power. And so he's making a point, very basic point here, through the use of a parable that that can't be true. Your argument contains error. They were recognizing that that what he did was good, they had to do that. I mean, who would say that casting out a demon and seeing a blind man or a mute man or whatever, uh, you know, come to their full faculties and be totally restored, oh, that's bad. No, anybody in their right mind would say, that's a good thing to restore somebody to wholeness, to healthness, to to, to full health. So they recognized what he was doing was good. And what he's pointing out is, you know what, you can't say that I'm evil (laughs) if I'm doing good things. Very clear. They were recognizing that as a good thing because their own sons, their disciples did that. He points that out previously in the text. If they're casting out demons, supposedly, whether they were or not, for, for sure, we don't know. But they made themselves out to be as religious leaders. They you know had a whole thing of, of demon uh, dealing with demons and casting them out and everything. Whether they did it for sure or not, we don't know. But they looked at that, even if it was a ruse, they said, oh, this is a good thing. But then when it came to Jesus, and he did the exact same thing, and even more dynamic, they said, oh, that's bad. The work is good, but you're doing it by an evil, satanic power. So the Lord is saying, how can you say that when I cast out demons, which your own disciples do, I am evil? You've acknowledged that that's already a good thing. And and so they were kind of trapped. They didn't know what to do. They had to either say that what their own disciples was doing was evil, which they weren't going to do because they were religious leaders, or they had to admit that what Jesus was doing was good. And if Jesus was doing good things, then he couldn't be evil. He couldn't be empowered by Satan himself. And so that little parable there is common. The Lord uses that. He used it in 717 before he's talking about false shepherds. And he says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit. And over in that culture and in that era, the the world, I mean, there's fruit trees. There's all sorts of things growing around that made a very practical illustration. And he says, therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. We looked at that when we went through there. In Luke chapter 6, verse 43 to 44, he uses the same idea. For a good tree does not bear bad fruit nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, for every tree is known by its fruit. So he's saying, you know what? Simply he's saying, make up your minds. If the tree is good and its fruit is good, and if the fruit is good, then the tree is good. If the the tree is evil, then it has to have evil fruit. You can't mix those two. The quality of the fruit is a reflection of the tree itself. And when they looked at christ's ministry they said he was doing amazing things they were amazed by the things that he was doing they weren't looking at the things he was doing and saying oh bad look at him they couldn't condemn him for anything all he was doing was healing people and and delivering demons and they were all good things and especially from their theological position they they even believed that at times if somebody was sick that it was because of their what because of their sins So when someone was healed, that was always a good thing. They never looked at it as a negative thing, except when it came to Christ. And so they knew that sin and disease were connected in their minds somehow. And so when someone was delivered from a disease, they looked at that as a good thing. Uh, The healing of the blind, the giving of the hearing to the deaf... Voice to the dumb, whatever it was, they 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 couldn't possibly stand in front of people and say, "Well, those are bad things." They understood that that was a good thing. Even over in uh, John chapter ten, we heard a message down at the conference. about John chapter 9, when uh, the Pharisees come to question the man who was born blind. But in John chapter 10, he says, Jesus basically says in verses 25 and 37 and 38, he says, if you have trouble believing me, if you have trouble believing my words and affirming who I am, the Messiah, the Son of God, then you know what? Believe me for my what? Work's sake. In other words, look at what I'm doing. Who else could do this? And that was the conclusion of the blind man in John 9. When the Pharisees asked him, Well, how did you receive your Well, he he healed me. Well, who is this man? Where does he come from? And the blind man simply said, You know, look, all I know is I was blind and now I see. If you don't understand where the guy is or where the guy came from that did this to me, then I I don't have anything to say to you. Obviously, he must be from God. Who else could do such a thing? That was the conclusion. It was so obvious. And so Jesus basically indicts the religious leaders publicly before the whole crowd of people here. And he's basically pointing his finger in their chest and saying, you know what? Your, your argument is absurd. It's illogical. It's inconsistent if you claim that I do these things by the power of Satan. Well, he doesn't stop there. Look at what he does. He, he even kind of goes on and he makes his point and he, he kind of turns it a little personal. All right, it's one thing to tell a little story about something and kind of use vague terms. Have you ever done that with somebody? Maybe you're counseling somebody or whatever and you're saying, well, you know, I once knew a man. And, you, and you're talking about the person you're talking to, but you're using an illustration so it doesn't seem like you're attacking them or whatever. And usually they get the point. Well, Jesus doesn't even do that. He tells a story, and then he says, by the way, look at what he says, very next verse, brood of vipers. Okay, that's, that's not a very endearing term. Uh, he wouldn't get the Dale Carnegie, uh, you know, most loved award here for the way he's speaking to these people. He calls them a name, brood of vipers, and then he says, how can you, being evil, speak good things? So he takes this parable and now he personalizes the parable right down to them. He makes it very in your face, as we say. He's saying, what in the world do we expect to come out of you? Because all that's in you is rotten, rottenness, evilness. You're evil to begin with. I don't, I don't ex- expect anything else to come out of you. That's why he says, how can you being evil speak good things? If you're evil in your heart, how can you affirm what I'm who I am and what I'm doing? That's what Jesus is saying to them. There was a corrupt tree, so he expected nothing but corrupt fruit out of that tree, and he's using this illustration to kind of depict the Pharisees as such. He noticed that he calls them their brood of vipers. It was a very favorite phrase that our Lord used all the time. Um, actually the John the Baptist kind of started the whole thing in Matthew 3, 7. He called them the same thing. But there are several occasions when when Jesus refers to the Pharisees as a brood or a generation of vipers. And he doesn't even hesitate. He doesn't even say, now, you know, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I, I don't want to step on your toes. But No, he just blurts it out. And remember, this is in a public place. And these are religious leaders. I mean, sometimes, you know, we have to watch what we say and we have to be careful how we say it. But here Jesus kind of takes the gloves off, you might say. And he wants the truth to be known. And so he calls them a generation or a brood of vipers. What does that mean? A viper, obviously, is a poisonous snake. Over there they have different kinds of snakes and some of them are poisonous and things like that. And so uh, Jesus was simply pointed out, pointed out something that they were very acquainted with. They're out traveling about the countryside. Some of these vipers were, uh, you know, they'd stand out. Some of them didn't. Uh, some commentators believed that he was referring to something that would basically blend right in with all the sticks so you wouldn't even see it. And once these vipers would latch on to you, remember the Apostle Paul had a viper latch on to him. I mean, they would put their venom, just, you know, pump it through the veins of their victim. And they were acquainted with that. And he's calling them, basically, snakes, a viper, who could hide underneath the rocks and blend in with everything, but they were deadly, filled with deadly poison. They were evil at heart, even though on the outside, they may have looked like a simple little stick. They may have just been harmless. And he wants them to understand that he's on to them. I think that the word brood there, obviously, is also, some of your translations may read generation of vipers. And he may just be saying that they're generated from Satan. In other words, he may be turning the tide on them. He may be saying, oh, you think I'm doing by the power of Satan? Well, I got news for you. You and your religious gang are from Satan himself. Or he could simply be pointing out that they were great in number, that this group of Pharisees appeared because snakes tend to multiply quickly. Sometimes they'll have anywhere from uh, 10 to 40, you know, in one brood or one, one, one deal. And so Jesus calls them subtle killers with poisonous tongues. That's basically what he's saying. And after that greeting to them, look at what he says. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? How can you being evil speak good things? In other words, how could anything else come out of your mouth other than blasphemy? That's what we expect. Because you're evil. Notice the word there, it says being evil. See that? See, sometimes in our Christian walk, we get a little messed up in our theology. And sometimes it doesn't say because you're doing evil, does it? It doesn't say that. It says because you are. You are evil. Being evil is a state that you're in. It's not something you do. And we have to clearly understand that as Christians... We are constantly judging ourselves by what we do. Not by the state in which we find ourselves. And so what happens in our Christian life is we get caught up in a sin. And what do we do? We go after that sin with everything, hopefully that's within us, to defeat that sin. So we spend all of our time and our energy on that one sin. And then finally, maybe we have a little bit of victory with that area of our lives. And then what happens? Something else comes up. So then we concentrate on that. And while we're concentrating on that, this other sin seems to come back into our life. And it's like you're putting out little fires everywhere. And pretty soon you throw your hands up, exhausted, saying, I can't do this anymore. How am I supposed to do this? And it's because we don't understand the state in which we are. We are sinful people. Who do sinful things. So if we take that a step back and we begin to understand the fact that we are sinful. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Ephesians it says that we were dead in our trespasses and sin before we came to Christ. That's what Paul said. In other words, man is born in sin. In Psalm 51, 4, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Jeremiah said, The heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately what? Wicked. Who can know it? See, the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament, it just kind of categorizes the heart of man. And it shows at all times, in all places, in all circumstances, the heart of man is ever and always evil, it's always corrupt, it's wicked. That's known as the depravity of man. The corruption of the sin nature is passed from Adam down through every man, and it poisons everybody in that line. So every man is born into the world evil. You say, well, even my little baby? Yeah. Yeah. Isaiah said, the whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. Man without God abides in that state of evil being and produces only evil products and evil fruit. So in 1 Samuel 24 13, it says, as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from where? The wicked kind of makes sense. That's what Jesus is is saying back in Matthew. If you have a bad tree, it's going to produce bad fruit. So he's applying this parable. He said we would expect vile things from vile people. And that's the case we're faced with. From there, he moves on to a third point. He shares the principle, he personalizes, or he shares the parable, he personalizes the parable. And then he basically wraps it up with this principle in verse 34. He says there in verse 34, at the end, he says, For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, whatever's inside of you, folks, is going to come out. That's just the way it is. Whatever's inside of you is going to come out. And you know where it's going to come out? It's not going to come out of your ear, it's going to come out your mouth. Because the mouth is the doorway, the window to the heart. That's the major principle in this passage. The Pharisees blasphemed Jesus, they blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they came to condemn him. But Jesus turns the table right around on him and he says, You know what? You can't condemn me. I do good. Therefore, I must be good. Your vile blasphemy shows that you condemn yourselves because if that is what's coming out of your mouth after what I've done for you, after what you've seen me do, then that's what's in your heart. It's showing your own heart is nothing more than evil and wretched. Now, this principle at the end of verse 34, we want to look at some of these terms. It says, For out of the abundance. See, the heart, first of all, is the basis of our thinking. I mean, we think of heart, we think of Valentine's Day, we think of lovey dovey stuff, all that. Well, in in their culture, it was the basis of their thinking it's your thoughts, it's your mind, your will, your source of knowledge. I mean it can mean emotion but it's not necessarily talking about that here it's talking more about our thought process the way we reason things. And if you look over at Matthew chapter 15 verse 18 you'll see this illustrated. The same expanded statement that we just saw in verse 34 but 15:18 He says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from where? Come from the heart. And they defile a man. In other words, a man is defined publicly. In other words, in view of those around him, it's known that he is a defiled man by what he speaks. And what he speaks comes out of his heart. Verse 19 says, for out of the heart proceeds what? Evil thoughts. See, the heart then is the thinking place. Not just emotions. It's the way we think. He goes on there and he, he says that, that uh, murderers, adulterers, fornicators, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemes, Blasphemies. See, all those things are things that come out of man that that defile the man. And so if you blasphemy on your mouth, if it comes off of your lips, then you know what? You have blasphemy in your heart. That's what Jesus is pointing out to them. So he's simply saying your thinking process is blasphemous and it's going to come out of your mouth. That's exactly what happened to the Pharisees. Notice he says, out of the abundance of the heart. That word abundance is interesting. It means a super abundance. In other words, it's not just the heart's a little bit full. No, it's overflowing. It's a surplus. The word implies pure excess, more than what you'd ever need. And so the heart is jammed full, and it has this overflow valve on it. I don't know if you have ever seen a uh, one of those uh, what do you call them? Steam cooker things? Pressure cooker. You have the little safety thing on top. Well, that thing reaches so far, what happens? That little thing clicks off and it starts spewing steam out so the thing doesn't blow up, all right? Also, on your water heaters in your home, you have the same thing. You have a water heater. It's kind of a closed thing, but they got that little safety valve on top. If something were happening, that thing just keeps on boiling on the water and you don't turn the water on. The water's got to go somewhere. The steam's got to build up and go somewhere. Well, what's on top? The little safety valve. And that thing will pop and, and you know, let that overflow. Well, think of our heart as just jam-packed full of stuff, and all of a sudden, where does it go? It comes out of our mouth. The heart is full, and the mouth is the safety valve, or the spillover, you might say. The mouth is the overflow valve to what's in the reservoir. A man's character is known by his mouth. That which is in the heart of man, the Bible says, is going to come to the surface. And most obviously, it does through his mouth. You don't have to talk, if you have any kind of reasoning at all, to talk to somebody very long to understand where they're coming from. What's coming out of their mouth? I've talked to people on occasion, every other word is a cuss word. And not nice cuss words, bad cuss words. Every other word, literally. Uh, you know, you just stand there and you go, How can this person even make sense? I mean, every other. I mean, if they were to you record it and try to put it on TV, it would be bleep, 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 bleep. I mean, it would just be a constant bleep. Well, that shows you a little bit about what's in their heart. What's going on in there? The heart's pure. If the thinking's pure, then you're going to hear words come out of their mouth. That are pure. If the thinking's evil and dirty and lustful and corrupt, then you're going to hear that come out of the mouth. Look back at Job 32, the Old Testament, Job. And Job is a book where everybody's trying to say something. Did you ever notice that? I mean, you get past the eventual thing. Everybody's trying to give Job advice. Everybody's saying, talking, whatever. And I just want to focus in on one, one guy here, Elihu, because he's been quiet the whole time. But in Job thirty two seventeen, he just can't contain it anymore. All right? And everybody else has been piping in and giving their advice to Job on why he's gone through all the suffering and everything. You know the whole story. But look at what he says in verse 17, Job 32. He says, I will answer my part. I, too, will declare my opinion, for I am full of what? Words. The spirit within me compels me. Look at what he says. He uses very vivid language here. Verse 19. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. And it is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. See, that, I, you can go on there, but the point is, is it just proves the point that the mouth is the receptacle in which the heart overflows. And so what comes out of our mouth is very, very important. What comes out of your mouth when you're stressed out, when you're angry, when you're impatient? That will reveal what's in your heart. It says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you can go through Proverbs chapter 10, uh, Proverbs 12, 13, 14, 15, so uh, the whole thing. Psalm 64, all that stuff. You're going to find this same principle right there. In James, the first chapter, verse 26, he says, If anybody anybody among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his own tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And in James, chapter 3, verse 8, it says, No man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Paul continues to point the sum of all the sinfulness of man out in in Romans 3. And he comes to the, the, the kind of the, the, the climax of, of man's vile, vile character in Romans 3. He says, their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, it says, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is on, under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. See, the mouth becomes the ultimate demonstration, as it were, of an evil heart. Whatever's in the heart is going to come out through the mouth. Proverbs 23, 7 says this. We've memorized this. For as he thinks in his heart, what? So he is. Well, he continues this principle in verse 35. He kind of just applies it a little bit for us. in Matthew 12, verse 35. He says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth brings forth evil things. I mean, that's such a simple thing to understand. We don't even have to really explain what it means. But when you focus in on that one word, treasure, that word means reservoir. That word means storehouse, treasure chest, a box. And what he's saying is when you open the box, whatever's in the box is going to come out. It's the word that's used in Matthew 2 verse 11 when the wise men came and they brought treasures to Jesus. They brought their boxes, their gifts were in boxes, and they brought them to Christ. See, we have to understand that within our heart we have a box, we have a chamber, we have a reservoir. And the only thing that you can get out of that reservoir is what's in there. If you're an unbeliever and you don't know God... The Bible says, in you dwells no good thing. Nada, zip, nothing. You can argue with that all day long, but you're arguing with God. You can only bring evil out of your treasure box outside of Christ because all there is in your treasure box is evil. That's what Jesus is pointing out. Some of you are into computers. Computers first came on the scene very common phrase that was used garbage in garbage out right same thing same thing every man's heart is a storehouse and what's stored in the heart is going to spill out of the mouth sooner or later so the lord says here that you're going to be judged by that the objective criteria By which the Lord can determine your eternal destiny can be the record of what you say. Because every evil person will not utter anything that is truly good. You say, well, you know, I know some non-Christians that say nice things. Well, that may be true. But they don't have any, they don't offer any advancement to the kingdom of God if they're outside of Christ doesn't ultimately glorify God just because an evil person says nice things because God doesn't look that. He looks at their heart. A good person who's made good by the grace of God because they trusted Christ and Christ has transformed their life, well, out of their heart is going to come, what? Good things. But because we're not totally glorified yet, there's also going to be some evil things that come out of our heart, right? Because we're not perfect. As we work through this endeavor to overcome our flesh on a daily basis. that that war going on. See, but an unregenerated person, someone outside of Christ, can't say anything good. Anything truly good in God's eyes. It may be good on a human level. But it's not good on a level that God requires. And so the Lord basically tells them, you know what? You're the vile ones. And it's made very obvious obvious that you're vile by the nature of your speaking, your blasphemous statement about me and the Holy Spirit. It just reveals your heart. That's what he's pointing out. He's saying, if you were good, you wouldn't be saying these things. Very clear, very simple illustration, principle. And then he moves on to a fourth point, and he says, There's going to be consequences for this. And he points them out. He points out the punishment. Verse 36 he says, But I say to you that for every idle word men speak, they will give account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Some people misunderstand and have a problem understanding that we are ultimately going to be judged on our works and our words. Some people have issues with that. You see that in Romans 2, where it says that God will render to every man according to his what? His deeds. And here he says that he will judge men according to their words. Very clear. He doesn't stutter. By your works and by your words will come your eternal judgment. You say, well, I thought we were saved by grace. We are. Through faith. Out of yourselves, lest any man should boast. But what he's showing us here is that we will show that salvation by grace Through faith, when we demonstrate good works and we demonstrate good words. So it kind of becomes an objective criteria by which God can make that judgment. Because if Christ has transformed your heart, if Christ has forgiven you of your sin, and you have a transformed heart, and you're a Christian and you follow Christ, well, you know what? Out of your heart is going to come good things. There's going to be some bad things, too, because you're still in the flesh. But there are going to be some good things. But if you don't know Jesus Christ and you've never trusted him as your Lord and Savior, only bad can come out. Because that's all that's there. Because the Bible says the heart is wicked and desperately evil. So the words of men are accurate gauges about their hearts. If You have a transformed heart. Jesus Christ has come into your life and transformed you. Your words will God will hear your words and he will justify you according to your words. This doesn't mean that we're not saved by grace. uh, We are saved by grace. But a lot of times we get a little mixed up because we like to quote that. Ephesians 8, 8 and 9, for we're saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast... And we forget to look at the very next verse, verse 10, says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, it says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved by grace through faith onto good works and good words, you could say. The works and the words prove that the faith is real, that the faith has been there, that the faith has transformed the heart. God is looking objectively at your words and at your works. And he knows whether you've been redeemed. And so can we, by the way. If you have a question, if you doubt your own salvation, if you have a question of whether or not you're saved, listen to yourself talk when nobody else is around. That means you'd be talking to yourself, which may not be a good thing in and of itself, but you know what I mean. Or when you get upset or you get angry. Now, we all lose it at times, and, you know, I just talk to my wife. She'll tell you, but the overall practice, okay, shouldn't be that because words will reveal what's in our heart. Well, look at verse Matthew 12, verse 37. By your words, you will be condemned. Every person is responsible for what he says. If he rejects Jesus Christ, then he'll be responsible as a result of that. He'll have a lifetime of useless, empty, evil words. Even though on a human level, they may be considered good, at God's level, they won't. They're going to be condemned by their words. And the judgment here, primarily, I think, it's talking about the great white throne judgment, the ultimate eternal judgment. Christians aren't going to be there because their sins have been already... Forgiven at the cross, they've been dealt with. I mean, we we sin with our tongues, don't get me wrong, in our mouths. But our myth speaks and our sins of the tongue are under the cross of Christ, under the blood of Christ. But those with unbelieving hearts are going to have nothing but unbelieving words. And by those words, God will condemn them. They'll be condemned subjectively by their lack of faith in Christ and objectively by their words of their mouth and the works in their life. Luke 19.22 says it very simply. He says, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. Another parable. Out of your own mouth, Luke 19.22, I will judge you, you wicked servant. See, God comes to the time of judgment with the evil people in Revelation 20, and what's he do? He opens the books. And what do those books contain? Well, some contain, they believe, they have all the deeds and all the words spoken of those people. You can run through all the deeds and the words and find not one good thing, the Bible says. And God keeps pretty good record. I read online that, you know, when when our words come out of our mouth, when the sound waves travel through the air, they're gone. They keep on going. They don't end at your ear. I mean, they're, they're bouncing all over the place, and they just go out there and wherever. There was one instance where some guy in England reported that he turned on his television set and all of a sudden the, sh- the show was interrupted by some show originating from Texas in the United States. And he thought, this is weird. Is the BBC. <laughs> What's this show from Texas? And he's kind of intrigued and he thought, this is weird. How, how am I getting this? He called the BBC and he asked them, you know, are you guys broadcasting this station? I'm getting these picking up this station from Texas. What's going on? I said, no, we we don't do that. No, we don't have anything like that. I don't know how you're getting it. We watched the end of the show and he waited and saw the station at the end and he ended up calling this television studio somewhere in Texas, tracked him down. He called them and he said, are you broadcasting on BBC? And I said, no, why would we do that? He goes, well, I was watching this show. And he gave him the name of the show and everything. And he said, we don't have anything on the air like that. And the guy said, well, I just got done watching it, you know, yesterday after that. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. And the guy said, well, what's the name again? And he gave him the name. He ran. And he said, you know, sir, that, that show was on our radio or our TV program three years ago. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's weird. Somehow all this stuff is out there so you say well how is god going to bring it all back together i don't know but he's going to and we're going to be judged accordingly but it also says there in verse 37 you're not only condemned but by your words you will be justified well what does that mean that means ultimately the believer will be justified objectively by what he says we're saved by faith in christ through grace But it's the manifestation of our words and our works that become, you might say, the criteria by which our salvation can be made manifest or obvious. And that's where God transforms your heart. And where there's a transformed heart, there's going to be a transformed mouth. And out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when that heart gets filled up and you begin to speak, what are you going to see? You're going to see things that emulate Christ. You're going to hear things that emulate Christ. Every once in a while, the mouth may sound like its old sinful self, but for the most part, the practice should be something that honors God. But see, an unbeliever can never, ever speak good things because their heart is not good. Their heart is evil. Their heart is lost. But we will be justified by our mouths. So there's no such thing as proving your salvation apart from observation. The Bible says you're saved by the manifestation of good works and good words. That is, your your salvation is made visible through those things because you're saved by grace. And I hear this all the time. But sometimes people make a profession of Christ. And then they you know, go on to make excuses why the person still acts the way they did before they came to Christ. Have You ever heard that? Yeah, my sister came to Christ life. Really? Great. Yeah, you know, she's uh, she was real excited for a couple days. Now You know, she's kind of struggling, and she's basically back to her old ways, but she made that profession of faith. It's called a false profession of faith. Nothing happened. There is no transformation of the heart. Because if there is a transformation of the heart, you would see it in the transformation of a life. And when you don't see the transformation of a life, that indicates there is no transformation of the heart. Which indicates there is nobody being saved. So don't ever say, well, you know... God's just, you know, he's still working on them. Well, yeah, you're not going to be perfect, but you should see something. Something happened. So he says, every idle, useless word. He doesn't say blasphemous word. He says idle or useless word. It means barren. It means unproductive. It means careless. It doesn't just mean the worst of words. It doesn't talk about Curse words here. It's talking about just words that have no meaning, that aren't doing anybody any good. Main object here is basically the Pharisees, and he's talking to unbelievers, as it were. And he says, You know what? First of all, your words are useless, they don't make any sense. I've already pointed that out. And all your religious jargon, you can just flush down the toilet because it's not going to do you any good in the time of judgment. And he says that these idle words that men speak, they're going to have to give an account. The unbelieving world basically talks forever. Everybody's doing their 25,000 to 30,000 words a day. Everybody's writing their own 300-page book, whatever it might be, every year. You know, uh, 300 books a year, I should say. Um you know, we all got these opinions, we're all talking, everything else, and and basically the sum of all that, all that is what's in your heart. If your heart is good, then some of those things are going to be good. If your heart is evil, none of them can be good. And so we need to be reminded, I think, this morning that our words are important. You say, well, how do you know the unredeemed or the Redeemed by what comes out of their mouth. The Bible says that the unredeemed speak evil words, that the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. It describes them this way it says that they're lustful words, for the lips of an adulterous woman drip honey and are smoother than oil. They're deceitful words, for the tongue is a deadly arrow which speaks deceit. They're cursing words, the mouth is full of curses. They're oppressive words, mouth is full of oppression, Scripture says. They're lying words, for lying lips are an abomination to the Lord. They're perverse, false words. A wicked man is one who speaks with a false mouth. They're destructive words. By the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. But by the mouth of the wicked, it is torn down. Vain words, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice, said Peter. They're flattering words. A flattering mouth works ruin. They're foolish words. The mouth of a... Fool spouts folly. Their are mad words. The lips of a fool consume him. And the end of it is madness. They're multiplied words. The fool multiplies his words. They're false words. Empty talkers. Teaching for sordid gain. They're evil words. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash at him with their teeth. They're prideful words. In the mouth of the foolish is a rod of pride. They're hateful words. They have me... They they have surrounded me with words of hatred hatred. They are swearing words. The Bible says swear not at all. They are filthy words. Let not rotten communication come out of your mouth, the Bible says. They are gossipy words, gossips and slanderers like dainty morsels, it says. They go into the innermost parts of the body. See, those are the words, the Bible says, of the redeemed mouth, and by those words they will end up being condemned. And I think it does say something to Christians here because it does say that by our words you will be justified. We're accountable to God for our words. The Bible says that our speech as Christians should be seasoned with gray, or should be always with grace. seasoned with what? Salt, right? What does salt do? It prevents corruption. Our voice, our speech should never contribute To anyone's corruption. It should always prevent that. Salt's a way of adding flavor. So our our speech should hopefully be winsome and charming and encouraging and joyful. Psalm 141 verse 3 says, Set a watch, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. I mean, this this is, it's simple stuff, but you know what? It goes right to your heart. And I'm not standing before you saying, oh, yeah, you know, I don't have an issue here. You know, not at all. I have a major issue in some of these areas. And God's not done with me yet. Praise God. And he's not done with you yet either. So when we begin to speak our 25,000 or 30,000 words today, we need to stop. And we need to listen. What are we saying? And what does that tell us about our heart? When you write your 50 to 60 pages in your book today as you speak if we were to take that and pass it out among the congregation would you be ashamed for people to read it? Or would you be going ah, no problem. Would it betray the fact that you don't know God or would it fulfill the fact that you do? We want to just help us understand that in, in this simple application. When when asked, a true believer will always confess Jesus is Lord. They'll never deny him. A true believer will always confess Jesus is Lord. And also, a follower of Jesus Christ has to be careful with their tongue, what we say, how we say it. And uh, that kind of gets to the heart of the matter of, of what's going on inside us. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then we'll close with a song. Father, we thank you this morning that your word is so clear. It's so simple. It's not rocket science. But, Lord, it's also very piercing. It's very true. And, Lord, we know that out of the mouth, out of the door of our mouth, the Bible says that our words will either justify or condemn us. I mean, the Pharisees spoke evil because they were evil. Jesus pointed that out. And they were condemned by their own mouths. And Lord, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, that they would take home with them the message that there's none good, no, not one. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. That we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And with a heart filled with faith, you ask God, Forgive you of that sin. Turn from that sin. You embrace Christ. You embrace the work he did for you on Calvary. and He will save you. I don't care if you've cried out a million times to God. If it comes from a sincere heart. If it comes from the acknowledgement that you are lost in your sin without any hope. The only hope you have is Jesus Christ to save you. If that's the condition of your heart and your mind this morning, you cry out to him and he will transform you. He will save you. and He'll make you brand new. He'll forgive your sin, transform you, give you, take away that rocky heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. And as Christians, we need to understand that there's a fountain that comes out of our mouth every day. And we have to ask ourselves, is it representative of the Lord and Savior who died for us in our place on Calvary? Is it honoring to him? Is it glorifying to him? Do we put ourselves in situations that bring him dishonor? We need to repent. We need to turn back to you and help You ask you for help to help us to walk a, a walk that's worthy of our calling. One that would honor Christ in every way. We ask this this morning in Jesus' precious name. Amen.